When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Let It Roll, the insanely ambitious musical history podcast hosted by Nate Wilcox. We've covered the early history of rock and roll, country music in the 20th century, the rise of hip-hop, disco, electronic dance music, and heavy metal. Stay tuned for our histories of Broadway, opera, punk rock, jazz, blues, ragtime, Latin music, and gospel. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast, and check out our brand new Substack newsletter and website at LetItRollPodcast.com. We've got archives of every episode sorted by genre, era, guest, co-host, and miniseries. It's also a great way to support the show if you can afford it. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcast.com. Today, Nate welcomes back Brooks Long to discuss David Ritz's autobiography slash oral history of the Neville Brothers. Email us with any questions you may have or any comments you may have at letitrollpodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and tonight we welcome back Brooks Long to continue our David Ritz Book Club with a discussion of The Brothers Neville, Art, Aaron, Charles, and Cyril, co-written by David Ritz. Brooks, welcome back. Missed you, man. Oh, yeah, this is, this is great. I, I miss this, too, um, and I'm glad to be back for all the David Ritz stuff really is, is pretty great, uh, but this is one hell of a story. Yeah, this might be the most entertaining of all the Ritz books we've read. I mean, entertaining is kind of the wrong word. It's way heavier than entertaining. This is a saga. These guys went through it. I mean, damn, it took them up. I mean, wow, yeah. But let's quickly summarize the book. So the Neville brothers, obviously famous as such. Aaron Neville, famous as a solo artist. Art Neville, famous as the organist in the Meters, the great New Orleans funk band and session band in the 60s and 70s. And um, yeah, and and Cyril was the singer for the the Meters, and Charles was was a well-established R&B horn man before they coalesced as the Neville Brothers, Quad Neville Brothers in 1977. And this book's a little different because it's more of an oral history. It's not a cohesive narrative. It's it's very different than any other Ritz books. I think this is a good way to do it, but I thought that was interesting. Did you notice that too? Yeah, I think this is probably the only way to do it. And uh, I think I read some, I think David Ritz gives some hint maybe in the, in the introduction uh, that 
it had to be this way. Uh, there was, uh, it, it seems like it would have been difficult any other way because all the brothers are so, so different that you, he's really great at capturing a voice. Trying to capture all these different voices is just, uh, especially when when they're all so interesting. Um, yeah, and, and, and distinct, and and they all, other than well, even Art has his troubles later on with Freebasin in the eighties, but but the other three have a lot of trouble with heroin and crime, like not just buying drugs, you know, illegally recreationally. But Charles did some prison stints. Yeah, um, probably did the worst stuff in Angola. Yeah, he, he he went to Angola, which is one of the scariest you know penitentiaries in in America, which is saying something. That, but you know he was he was pulling full on fraud. You know what he went to jail for was a flagrant, ridiculous setup, like two joints yeah. handed to him by a snitch. But you know by his own account, he was he was up to no good pretty frequently. <laughs> yeah, they 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 that's how they caught him. That's how yeah. they caught him. Yeah, yeah. So let's dive right into it. So the Nevilles, of course, are from New Orleans, and and the Thirteenth Ward in particular. You know, and, and an interesting blend. Like there, there were their mother's side, the Landry family, were Creole Catholics, and and the father's side were Black Methodists. And so the and and they even talk about it. Um, it was Cyril, I think, that that had the aunt, Auntie Cat, Auntie Cat, that was straight up racist. Although she was she was Creole black herself, that was fascinating to me. What, what were you surprised by any of that? Or are you already familiar with all the different cast levels and stuff in New Orleans? Um, well, you know, some of that colorism uh, still exists today to probably a, a, a lower volume. Uh, but um, but I, I think it always it always stings. But was I surprised? No, not really. I mean, you know, this is this is you know maybe forty years before Spike Lee made School Days, so you know this. Yeah, uh, yeah, it's it was, happening. Yeah, it was it was it was fascinating stuff. But I. I I don't know. As we've been as we've been doing the series, you know, and New Orleans keeps coming back up over and over again, and so a lot of old familiar characters pop up in this episode. These guys knew everybody and played with everybody, and, you know. If they didn't play with them, they were influenced by them. I mean, you know, they were raised on gospel. Um, Aaron, in particular, loved the gospel harmony groups, but he also loved all the doo-wop harmony groups. They, um, you know, fittingly, um, Charles was way into bebop. Although, it's interesting, he didn't become an accomplished bebop player until much, much later in life. Like, apparently, he coasted with R&B bands off the blues scale for a long time, from his account, at least, which, which, which I thought was interesting. But... Many did. Many, many continue to. Uh, I think like Fathead Newman just kept switching between throughout his whole career. Um, and uh, John Coltrane started off in R&B. and yeah. And uh, Coleman, too. Yeah. And he, he talks about the, the great George Coleman, who uh, was the person, one of the people in between uh, Coltrane and uh, Wayne Shorter in Miles Davis's band, who, who he actually, you know, played with. Um, you know, he went back and forth. 
Uh, yeah, I, I think the lines are not so defined, especially back then. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, and Charles is, identifies himself. Louis Jordan is the guy he shouts out first and foremost as this guy was jazz to me, which yeah. is fascinating since we retroactively classify Louis Jordan as jump blues or R&B or proto rock and roll. When I guarantee you, Louis Jordan saw himself as jazz, as playing jazz. And, and you know, he was in Chick Webb's band in the 30s, and did, he basically stuck with what they were doing with Chick Webb in the 30s while, you know, people like Dizzy Gillespie, who played with Chick Webb himself, you know, and Ella Fitzgerald from the, from the Chick Webb band, they, they went off in a different direction. Louis Jordan, he innovated, but anyway, I just thought it was fascinating that... that you know, the first jazz man that Charles shouted out was Louis Jordan, who's rarely seen as a jazz guy. But yeah. Oh, he's yeah. jazz for for sure. For sure. Yeah. That's that's and it goes back to, you know, what we talked about all the way back with Ray Charles, which is that as these people are innovating, they they still conceive of themselves in the old way. You know, they, they yep. can't really know who they are in the new th- thing inside of the new thing that they themselves are creating very astute point and let's go ahead and hear our first tune this is something that uh art neville recorded very young mardi gras mambo by the hawkettes down in new orleans where the blues were born it takes a cool cat to blow a horn on the south and rampart street the combos play with the mambo beat the mardi gras mambo 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 and that was Mardi Gras Mambo by the Hawkettes featuring Art Neville on keyboards and probably some vocals too. And it was interesting, that was a song that was essentially A&R'd by a DJ, one of these white DJs who would do black lingo on the radio and they talk about that how how you know there was a guy at the radio station who was the black guy who would teach these white djs how to talk and then they would sort of perform his 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 bit but this guy dj ken elliott aka jack the cat he cut a version of mambo mardi gras mambo as a country song that had flopped and and he got in his head that it could be an r&b version and he found the right cast to do it. The Hawkettes did it up and it's, you know, become this, it, it was only a modest local hit at the time, but it's just stayed part of the, the new Orleans Mardi Gras fabric. And, you know, pretty, pretty effing classic song. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's remarkable, but what's, what's so remarkable is, is just like, you could, you could just live in new Orleans R and B and you'd be a happy person for the rest of your life. Yeah, it is. It is the good stuff. You, you can't go wrong. If it was recorded uh, in Cosimo Matassa's studio, there's an excellent chance that it was cooking. And it's interesting to me, the way the Neville brothers, you know, they talk about Cosimo's studio. They obviously spent a lot of time there to varying degrees. Art in particular camped out there early on in his career. Um, and, and, and then later, you know, worked with Alan Toussaint the songwriter and, and pianist and producer. But there's definitely a feeling like, and, and it shows in their career arc because it took them, 
you know, both Art and Aaron had multiple local hits and regional hits and, and even national R&B hits. And Aaron had a massive pop and R&B hit Huge. In, yeah, in 1966, Tell It Like It Is, but then never was able to follow up on it. And they were just mired in bad record company deals where they got no royalties for these hits, no tour, tour support you know, kind of no guidance. And, it, and there's definitely an undercurrent of resentment towards, and they never say who it was, but they, you know, say in New Orleans, only one or two people, um, you know, were the bigs, but they, they do mention Dave Bartholomew and Fats Domino in their kind of resentful ways. And they talk <laughs> about Alan Toussaint a lot, but never really say anything nice about him. Did you notice that? Yeah, there was even a little slight uh, uh, further along in the book, I think, when uh, when maybe maybe it was Art that was talking about the production on uh, Meters Records. He was yep. he's basically saying that none of those producers really produced anything. It, it, you know, it was all us, the musicians, which, you know. Uh, you know, the Funk Brothers over in uh, Motown, they, they, they've said the same thing and lots of musicians have said the same thing. I'm sure that it is true enough. Uh, I do think, you know, uh, producers almost never get enough credit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it, it's, it's hard to know, but it's, it's, you know, they were definitely cut out of the biggest success. Like they never had like Lloyd Price level success but before we, we get on into their main career i do want to talk about one other thing was charles played with the rabbit foot minstrel show early on in his career and this is something that ma rainey played with them and they were they were i mean this was a 19th century basically a circus and the way he describes it i mean he kind of was like at the very end of this tradition and there were these incredible um black dancers who you know he described them as basically they were boxed out of ballet which is where they should have been by the, based on their talent and their artistry but because they were gay and black you know they're they're shunted off to this menstrual show traveling circus essentially but it's just fascinating to me because you know it comes up over and over again and, and let it roll ma rainey and bessie smith both were part of the rabbit foot menstrual show rufus thomas started out uh wearing blackface in the, in the minstrel show. So Charles yeah. didn't mention anything about that, but I thought that was really fascinating. I mean, it just shows just this book is like a whole century of music history in one book. There's a lot you can learn from this one book just because there's so much you can learn from, from New Orleans. Uh, it's not just New Orleans. There's some New York in here and there's lots of things, but yeah, it's but, lots uh, of Los Angeles too. Yeah. I do think about how, um, there are a number of musicians that had to had to go. Like New Orleans seems like a great place, at, at least in this era, to grow up and really uh, breathe in all of these influences and really get your funk down. But I will say that lots of musicians had to go elsewhere. I'm thinking of you know Louis not Armstrong. Yeah, yeah, Louis Louis Armstrong for one. I'm thinking of Earl Palmer. I'm thinking oh. of Leo Morris, who became yep. uh, Idris Muhammad. I'm thinking of Dr. John. Uh, you know, these yep, people yep. became like big session players, uh, but they they had to do it in L.A. and New York and things like that. Chicago. I think 
maybe. And yeah, I know a little bit about this, about being in a scene where there's so much talent, uh, but the infrastructure, the business infrastructure isn't quite where you, you'd like it to be. So things don't sustain um, yeah. unless you, the, the artist, are sustaining it. Yeah, for sure. And that was one of the weird things about New Orleans throughout the 50s and 60s was there was no real, none of the major R&B indie labels was headquartered in New Orleans. I mean, you had Specialty, which recorded a ton of New Orleans artists, Lloyd Price, Larry Williams, Art Neville, Aaron Neville. Um, but they were headquartered. Atlantic would go down there. Yeah, Atlanta. Atlantic recorded a lot there, um, but you know none of these labels were based there. And then we got to talk about Larry Williams. Like it seems like, yeah, you know, Art and Aaron both apprenticed, and even Cyril apprenticed kind of under Larry Williams, who's you know mainly remembered today as John Lennon's favorite original rock and roller, but oh. you know had multiple big hits and and dropped out of the music biz. Um, relatively young never hit the oldie circuit because he hit he hit the pimpin in Berkeley circuit <laughs> <laughs> and so just what these guys did not need i think was that was i don't know it's hard to say if larry williams was a positive or negative influence on them because they you know everybody but art basically struggled with heroin on and off for most of their lives and, and most of this book and larry williams was anything but a calming influence on <laughs> Nope. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and uh, but um, let's see who else we, we should talk about. Harold Batista signed Art to Specialty Records, and 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 he had nice regional hit with What's Going On. Uh, Sonny Bono, Sonny Bono drops in to produce, yeah. produce him singing the Whiff and Poof song, which I guess because Fat Domino had been doing so many oldies like Blueberry Hill and other things that they thought uh, Sonny thought. <laughs> had some magic there um but then he, then you know we got to play uh, our next song which is chadooki do which i thought was just a classic you know new orleans funk song but it turns out it was a cover of a country song that blew my mind let's hear it chadooki do by art neville And that was Chadooki Doo by Art Neville. Did you have any idea that was a country song before Art got his hands on it? You know, I'm not going to lie to you. I I am not familiar. I was not familiar with that song until I read the book and then I checked it out and I'm there's there's so much there's so much to dig into and in, in, yeah uh, yeah it was just crazy i mean i i'd had it on a comp of 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 50s new orleans hits and i just thought it was you know deep deep funk which it is um you know but <laughs> i had no idea it was, it was originally a country song so you know so far we played two songs that were both art neville covering country songs and completely transforming them but it's 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 all about the beat <laughs> and that that is that goes a long a long long way um and the, you know and anyway in the course of the book they you know they they art has his 
success on record. Charles hits the road very early on um, with a pretty shady performer. The House Rockers was what their band was called, but they frequently rolled into towns and build themselves as other artists. And and um, Art also did this as he Art would sometimes play as Larry Williams while working for Larry Williams. <laughs> <laughs> Larry Williams would double book himself and send art. But this House Rockers band Charles was in, you know, it's fascinating because as he points out, very few people, you know, you heard these artists on record and radio. There weren't big color magazines about R&B artists back in the day. They weren't on, on television. They weren't on newsreels. So most of the time people didn't know what they looked like. And you could get away with imitating all kinds of artists. And it's interesting. That's something that comes up. It came up in the late 60s, like ZZ Top spent some time pretending to be the zombies when they had a big hit with Time of the Season. So it's interesting oh. to me that, that you know, this, this, is, this phenomenon of impersonating artists has come up twice. Once in New Orleans in the, or in the chilling circuit in the late 50s and, and 60s, and then again on the beat band circuit in the late 60s with white artists. So, uh, well, I can think of two other instances you've probably already talked about as well. There was uh, there was James Brown impersonating Little Richard and Little yep. Richard, you know, told him to do that. And uh, and then there's also you could think about Sonny Boy Williamson, the second as basically the same thing. But with the whole act. Yeah. Yeah. But without the uh, the it being sanctioned by the original Sonny Boy, the actual Sonny Boy. Williams. Yeah. The actual Sonny Boy, I think, had been um, uh, come to a bad end in an alley, if I recall correctly, the wrong end of a switchblade. But yeah, that's a fascinating thing. And and these I mean, these guys just lived it. They did it all, you know, and 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 it's, you know, like Aaron was uh touring with larry williams and and was there when jackie wilson took a you know a truncheon to the head and got you know seriously concussed and jackie also got shot by a jealous woman around that same time but there's definitely a consensus in the jackie wilson scholarship that something happened to him around that time that he was he was physically diminished so i don't know if it was it could have been cumulative but um you know, just just fascinating stuff. These guys were just in the mix, but never really packaging themselves as the front man until, um, you know, Aaron and, and also in and out of jail. Like Aaron spent some time in jail uh, on some burglary charges. Nothing. It was just jail, jail, not prison. But but that kind of stopped his career momentum that was building in the late 50s. Then he had to start over in the 60s. And then. You know, Charles has more serious trouble and spends some serious time in Angola, which is a just absolute hellhole, but basically a slave plantation to this day. Yeah. Uh, massive, massive institutional, you know, monument to institutional racism. But, you know, Charles was and they were all tough, it sounds like, you know, from this book. They talked about their father teaching the box and Aaron's obviously a big bruiser. And But Art was the one I was kind of surprised to find out that Art was the one had the tough reputation as a kid. But he was the oldest. So that makes a certain amount of sense. But I wanted to get to Aaron's Parlow run because that's where he had the tell it like it is hit. But Parlow Records um, just not a not a very for for a record label that had that one big hit that's a classic case of the massive hit killing the label and it was not a well capitalized and it doesn't sound like it was a very well intentioned label either 
It may not have been. Uh, you know, it, there are plenty of hustlers in uh, in the music biz, but you know, there's also plenty of dreamers that you know don't don't all the way have have their shit together. That that happens too, and sometimes they end up being the same person or yeah. the same same people. You know, um, yeah, that that infrastructure to keep it moving just wasn't there although i i will say i think it takes uh, a certain amount of you know startup capital it takes a lot of things uh to to really get going i just heard an interview with smoky robinson where he was saying that for the first couple of motown hits none of the distributors even paid them they only paid them until they can prove that they were consistent hit yeah having yeah. consistent hit so smokey's got that famous story i think it was a check for three dollars and 89 cents or something that that barry gordy got from one of yeah. his first hits that was distributed by somebody else i did want to mention also this guy um um Banishak, uh who was the owned instant records and minute records that both art and aaron were on and he seemed in particularly a uh bad bad at paying royalties i don't know if he was um you know so that was a new orleans label but there's a reason that wasn't one of the storied r&b labels because they you know just couldn't pull it off and parlo in their defense like having a massive pop hit like that is probably the worst thing that can happen to a nascent r&b label because you have to print up millions of copies of the thing you know and and the distributors will happily give you credit but then they'll happily not pay you because they know there's not another hit where that one came from. So now I, I, it, it should be said that tell it like it is, is just e- even among what the, the Neville brothers have accomplished. That thing is just one of the most beautiful, classic, classic R and B songs that there has ever been. And that man saw you know a couple of dollars out of it you know? yeah yeah they, they, so, they, they, he got art and, and put together a tour and hit the road um yeah. but he was it seems to me that aaron was so strung out on heroin that that you couldn't really you know art bailed on him after a little while that, that he some of some of the problems were were self-inflicted i think on aaron's part for sure and there was a and is a lot of racism and a lot of uh, police harassment that was going on. So they oh, weren't yeah. doing themselves any favors in a place where it would be good to do themselves some favors. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, New Orleans, it's, it's funny because like as a music fan, you get these romanticized ideas of these cities like Memphis and New Orleans. And you think because there's all this great black music that you love that that it's easy to overlook how oppressive those cities still are to this day uh, to black folks and, and, Absolutely. and just get a totally, totally distorted view of what the city is. If, if all you're doing is listening to great records and, and, you know, have this fantasy idea of, of what new Orleans is like, the, the Neville's definitely lived the whole thing, but let's take a quick break and uh, hear from our sponsors. When we come back, we'll talk about art and the meters. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, 
Even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. And so, yeah, so we're, we're only halfway, you know, roughly through the chronology, and they've already, you know, had hits, big and small, and scattered to the winds. You know, the three older brothers, Cyril was about 10 years younger than the others, so he's he's homebound in New Orleans, but the other three are all on the road with a variety of, of performers, um, you know, all over the country, and, and rocking hard and, and living hard. And then they coalesce and come back together and form this group called Art Neville and the Neville Sounds. And this Cyril's getting to participate as a full-blown equal. He's playing percussions and singing. He's got developed his own singing style, which had to have been very intimidating with, you know, Art and Aaron as your big brothers. Um, they got a, a Charles is nowhere around, so they got Gary Brown on sax. Aaron is also singing with him, Art on keys and vocals, of course. But he puts together this rhythm section, Zygmunt at least, uh, George Porter Jr. on bass, um, Zig on drums, of course, Leo non, Leo Nocentelli on guitar. And for a while, they're a septet, I guess. And then Art gets an offer for a gig where there's only room for four dudes on the bandstand and kicks his two brothers and the saxophone player out. <laughs> and, and now you've got the meters, which becomes this legendary, legendary funk instrumental funk band and also uh session players and this is one thing i was i was a little disappointed that he didn't talk about recording you know what the the session work the meters did because they backed up lee dorsey alan toussaint dr dunn that you know they did so many sessions i'd really like to know more about their sessions but did you notice that too like what was your take on that i i did notice that i think um, I, I wonder if uh, Ritz was trying to maintain some balance with the other brothers' stories, but also I think at the end of the book, it, it sounds like Art had gotten to a pretty decent place with the rest of the meters, but it sounds like there was a lot of tension among those guys. <laughs> yeah, that and for sure. And it's interesting because Zig and Cyril were they came up together. They were, they were tight, you know, growing up, but then, 
if if Zig spoke up on Cyril's behalf when Art when Art canned him, nothing was <laughs> said about it in the book. But it, consistently, multiple times, Art talks about how he was the odd man out on their business decisions. Like at one point, they wanted to hire Phil Walden, or he wanted to hire Phil Walden as their manager, you know, legendary manager of Otis Redding, and later on the Allman Brothers. Definitely could have done big things for the meters, and the other three guys apparently vetoed that. At one point, you know, he's kicked out of the band over another uh, business dispute, and then when they uh, get signed to Warner Brothers, that is only on the condition that he returns into the band. So, yeah, there definitely seems to be some long-standing tension between Art and the other three uh, meters, and it's interesting. They're all basically Cyril's age, so almost a generation younger, 10, 15 years younger than R was. So mm-hmm. that had to have been had to have been a factor in that. But, um, you know, just a storied run. Just the, the, the meters are probably my favorite um, funk era band. And definitely my I mean, it's hard to pick that, that there's so many great records. I really enjoyed the listening homework for this. But yeah, me too. But the meters is, you know, I was in a band that just ripped off meters licks nonstop in the '90s, and and that's that's just a home base for me. It's right up there with Black Sabbath for me in my all time. Um, you know, these are records I have deconstructed and and learned all the licks on over and over again. And so it was really fun to go back to just just incredible, incredible stuff. But um, that didn't stop you know Aaron and Cyril from forming a new band you know in their wake that they, they put together the soul machine which sounds like it was mostly a covers band and and that the two of them were too chaotic and too strung out to ever really build anything other than a local band out of it but uh that's a shame that that combo didn't get to record yeah i i guess it it is although it sounds like they went to nashville for a little while and, and they did they did some things but uh, but but they they were still trying to trying to find their way. I think uh, Cyril. I, I think that might have been his his showcase where he really got to sort of expand. Unfortunately, that was happening at the same time. His habits were expanding, and the cops were just being brutal to to him and a, a lot of his uh, radical friends, um, which yeah. is really unfortunate. Yeah, there's but, some sad stories he tells about some friends, a, a friend named Mojo in particular that was murdered by the police. There was one situation where Cyril, where Aaron totally saved Cyril's bacon by keeping yeah. his head together and, and, and making sure nobody said anything stupid uh, when the cops clearly wanted to kill him and took him out, you know, took him for a ride and, and you know, not where you want to be, you know, being black guys uh, cuffed and alone in a field with a bunch of angry white New Orleans cops. But Aaron managed to talk their way out of that. And yeah, I mean, this book is, it's, it's heavy and hair raising. I mean, these guys, you know, they lived, they lived a wild life and, and, and they really and, did. Yeah. And it, it's, you know, and it was always kind of confusing to me because when the Neville, when I first heard of the Neville brothers, it was the eighties and they were treated as these, you know, absolute legends, which I think is rightfully so. But when I tried to investigate, like, you know, I was expecting that there would be like this big catalog of Neville Brothers hits from the 50s and 60s or whatever. And so their discography totally baffled me back in the day. And and you couldn't get the reissues like you can now. Yeah. Go ahead. 
Oh, I no, I I uh, identify with that. There's there's just something about the Nevilles as like an entity that makes you think that they've been just working together the entire time, which is true in spurts, um, but often not true on record until a little later. Yeah, for sure. And let's go ahead and hear our ne- next tune, and this is. The classic, Tell It Like It Is, by Aaron Neville, 1966. Something to play with, go and find yourself a toy. Baby, my time is too expensive. And I'm not a little boy. And that was Aaron Neville's legendary pop smash, Tell It Like It Is. And I'm kind of kicking myself for picking what I think are pretty obvious songs, but I just couldn't. I, there were some other Aaron Neville songs I thought about picking, um, you know, particularly, uh, you know, he did he did some with Alan Toussaint in the 70s, uh, Where's My Baby? That's just an yeah. Yeah, incredible song. I just had to go with that one. I, I'm sorry. It's <laughs> great. <laughs> yeah. It's- it is there's something magic about it i mean um these these guys do not want for great songs great grooves great singing at all um but there is something about that song (laughs) for sure it to me the only competition for is is uh when a man loves a woman by percy sledge like um you know to me it's very similar songs i think i think when a man loves a woman was a few months later maybe eight months later but it, it uh you know these just power ballads the wrong word because of aerosmith and everything but there's a lot of power in those ballads and, mm-hmm. and uh and aaron's singing voice is just so unique and incredible and obviously you know the rest of america uh came to love him but let's 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 move the story along so the meters have this run uh you know um three albums on josie records that are classic albums but poor distribution and everything else then they sign with warner brothers and do two albums and and at the same time they're back in dr john on this classic smash hits right place wrong time and, and such a night um and then art quits on him right before they play saturday night live which that has to have earned him i mean i'm sure the other guys are still pissed about that <laughs> you know but they did did get to open for the Rolling Stones, which was quite an experience, and they took Cyril along for that. But go ahead. Yeah, you know, it's it's so hard to to say. It sounds like four really big egos. Um, this book would suggest that the most level-headed one was the one that was 10 years older. <laughs> yep. And the one that was, you know, that was trying to get his brother Cyril in the band, and not just because it was his brother. In fact, Cyril uh, says that he had, you know, you know, a uh, a rough time connecting with with Big Brother Art, but uh, it, he was doing it because it just seemed to make the most sense that he felt that they needed a singer, and um, and that these guys, you know, thought that they could do. Uh, everything on their own, they, and they didn't need anybody else. Uh, and he put his foot down a number of times about that. 
And I don't know whether the Saturday Night Live thing was particularly about Cyril. I think Cyril was somewhat in the band at the time and put and by the way, did some great work with them. Yeah. Um, yeah. While while he was in there. Uh, but uh, but I, I, I think he, you know, according to the narrative of this book, Art had just gotten a little tired of the the diva attitudes going on with the rest of the guys. Yeah, there's definitely some long-term resentment among that band. There's also a great story Cyril tells about being led to stage. He was so disoriented backstage, I think in Glasgow, Scotland, <laughs> on the Stones tour, that, that he was he had to be rescued and led to the stage by Keith Richards. And if Keith Richards is, is, is coming to oh, rescue... the blind leading the blind. Yeah, you're in deep, dark waters at that so point. But, but so the meters fall apart, and that's when... Um, that's when the the brothers coalesce, and Aaron, Charles, and Cyril are all in New York City, and Cyr- and Charles in particular spent a lot of time in New York City, and and they're all strung out, and they they form a group and act plays the trio and start getting some momentum. They've survived the death of their father, the death of their sister, and then their mother passes away, and so their uncle Jolly, who was their uh, mother's brother, George Landry. He had started performing as a Mardi Gras Indian, which is you know the accepted term for black people who perform um, these traditional Mardi Gras rituals as Mardi Gras Indians. So you can't say Mardi Gras Native American. It, it just it just wouldn't quite be right. But Uncle Jolly had culturally, it's not correct. Yeah, and Uncle Jolly had had kind of perfected that act, pulls the brothers in around him, and um, that this is really the genesis of the Neville brothers because the meters break up, Art gets pulled in, they recruit another band called Black Mail to back them and, and go on tour. They record an album and you're gonna have to help me pronounce this. The wild, I think it's I think it's pronounced the wild to Chipitulis. Very good. Or, That's I, exactly I, what I heard on YouTube. So I, but I couldn't say it to save my life <laughs> even after I listened to it over and over again. So yes, yeah. Big Chief Jolly and the Wild say it again. The Wild to Chipotulis, I believe, Excellent. is. I, I mean, that that's all the letters. I, I, that's a work. <laughs> that, I'm I'm giving you the past. You know, I I stamp that approved. But they do an album together. It's well, really well received. And it, but it's their classic pattern, where they didn't get paid, and they didn't record a follow up. But they did tour, and they did, um, you know, tour with Big Chief Jolly. But then, their uncle passes away. And so that they put together their own package as the Neville brothers and and, you know, proceed apace. And and the success of the Neville brothers was really hard earned and took a long time. They became a smoke and live act in New Orleans and were just completely out of sync with what was going on nationally in the R&B world. Their, their first album, the Neville brothers, 1978. Of course, they're being pushed to record disco songs, which. Yeah, just, yeah. Seventy seventy eight is is uh, I don't know if that's known as quite the, the height of of disco as as a music. It's, it's <laughs> no, no. Yeah, it's not the critical peak of disco, but this is when. You know, the Stones are doing disco songs. Kiss is about to cut disco oh, yeah. songs. That's all 78, you know. yeah. 
Yeah, you know, and by '79, you know, you're talking Ethel Merman is cutting disco songs. So, you know, and if you were a black act, the pressure to do disco songs was immense, and 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 you know they couldn't couldn't fight that off. And but you know, they then they have a uh, you know pretty bum deal with with, a, and I wouldn't say a bum deal, but they they have two albums on A and M, and the second one, Fio on the bio, like. The idea that they would bring in session players and bring in a sax player to play instead of having Charles Neville play, just head smacking. Like, what were these people thinking? Like, who who do you think this is? You know, who are you recording here? But I found it fascinating that they really got their leg up from the Rolling Stones, who had been patrons of of the Meters, and you know had the Neville Brothers open for them. But I didn't I didn't know the Deadhead connection. Did you know that they had opened up for the Dead on multiple tours? Now it makes so much sense. <laughs> it it but, really does. But at the time at the time uh, or before I read this, no, not at all. But uh, you know, uh, with my exposure to the jam band scene. You know, somewhere in in the mix of you know bet- between the Grateful Dead and and I I don't know <laughs> Dave Matthews or Dave Matthews or something like that. Incident, Fish. Somehow the meters are are in that and are a part of that. And the Neville actually, brothers. Yeah, the I'm sorry, not the not the meters, but the Neville brothers are a part of that. Um, and. Uh, it, it makes a lot more sense after I read this. And Ivan Neville, uh, who, who is in Dumpster Funk, which is a one of the uh, the really really good jam bands that are out there, all that sort of starts to make sense. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, it makes perfect sense. And of course, you know, the Deadheads are going to go for the Neville Brothers, and and they could definitely stretch out at. At, you know, totally comfortable stretching out, totally red hot smoking band, and, and just able to bring that New Orleans tradition, package it as an act, and 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 take it on the road. And yeah, and the Dead were absolutely, you know, um, the Deadheads were a perfect audience for that. And it's it's just fascinating that you know the Nevilles were kind of out of time uh, with the R and B scene through this whole period, like like you know no connection with say prince or the time um or even cameo or something like that you know like there are there are those hard funk bands and no connection whatsoever with lionel richie and that that school of r&b um and so it, you know i think it's awesome that they found an audience and it was, it was a different audience i also didn't know that they had worked with bill graham and that he was a big part of their hard one success like all through the 80s they're basically just putting in the work and doing the touring and it's interesting that this is the period when art starts to struggle the one who'd been the quote-unquote good yeah. brother you know and had avoided heroin all the years that his other brothers were strung out by this time i think it was just charles who was still uh strung out Maybe Cyril too, but Aaron at least had cleaned up his act, and then Art discovers freebasing, which was the downfall of many a black person in their thirties and forties and eighties. So, mm-hmm. for, fortunately, they were able to carry him through that, and and he was able to play apparently, you know, 
hell or high water, but but they're building up these allies. You know, they must have had their act together because they're they're building up allies. Like Bill Graham would not truck with a bunch of screw ups. Like he he you had to have your act together to to be taken under his wing. Well, let's go ahead and hear our last song. This is Sissy Strut by the Meters. Sissy Strut by the Meters. That is a record that was glued to my turntable for about four years uh, in, the, in the early 90s. Just just one of my all-time favorite records. I, I cannot... It uh, just works. Yeah, it is just a damn tight band. And, and, and having tried to play that so many times, you can get the notes right and just completely flub the funk. I can tell you first. <laughs> <laughs> that, that yeah, there is easy stuff to do. Yeah, there, there's a special thing that 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 band was doing, but uh, you know, I'm thinking back to uh, to what you were saying about Charles not being uh, being the person that recorded for for one of the uh, the Neville Brothers albums. I think it was Fathead Newman, and you know, Fathead's great, but man, Charles, um, and I think in the course of this conversation we haven't talked about charles as as much i think uh maybe because that's it's not because he hasn't done a bunch of stuff and played with a bunch of people uh it, it might have something to do with like the recordings that he's done but this guy has you know been in every scene (laughs) yeah and uh you know played uh with so many different uh different musicians uh johnny taylor joe tex right we got to talk about the johnny taylor stories because johnny taylor you know a second wave stacks artist massive hits in the 70s but he was infamous for stranding his bands on the road and he did that to charles twice oh i mean (laughs) Oh, can you imagine like, being in Indianapolis or something? And, and where's where's the bus? Well, James has done it, but what hasn't James done? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's for sure. But yeah, the, the sto- Charles, I think, might have had the best stories in the book. Cyril or Charles, uh, they all had great stories with those two in particular. Like there was yeah. the the period when Charles was playing with Joe Tex, you know, just gritty, gritty funk R and B. And then he hooks up with something called the Sunshine Conspiracy, and is basically playing like Fifth Dimension and, and the soundtrack <laughs> of Hair on a, on a cruise. <laughs> yeah, and he, while he's strung and, out. Yeah, wasn't that him that that? It might have been him that ran into uh, Jimi Hendrix right, yes. like when he was starting to do his own psychedelic thing. I believe I think that was Charles. That c- could have been Art. But yeah, but they, they they several of them had crossed paths with with Jimi Hendrix though. I think Aaron mentioned no yeah, too, and, you know, because Jimmy put in his time with Little Richard and Don Covey. You know, he he worked that Shetland circuit hard too. And and yeah, it's just this is just classic. And and um, one of my favorite Little Willie John 
himself doesn't quite make an appearance, but his saxophone player uh, makes makes an appearance in a pretty fascinating story where, where the guy's like, um, you know, in an after hours jam session reveals that he's this badass, you know, gunslinging bebop saxophone player. And, and right. Yeah. And Cyril, I think it was Cyril, had to run and go get his buddy who was also an even better saxophone player yeah. uh, and uh, to, to cut that cat. But um yeah, that was that was that was the classic stuff. But we still have to talk about whole the whole Aaron Neville phenomenon. Yeah, and uh, and and that starts because Linda Ronstadt had seen the, the Neville brothers and asked him to to do a duet with her. And you know, the rest is history. Just massive, massive success for those two. And so, I think Aaron's success as a solo artist or as a duet artist with with Ronstadt helped. It, it 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 drove labels to be much more interested in the Neville Brothers than they would have been otherwise, I think. And so you know they do albums on, they they had the run on A and M, which did never quite click. Then they do an album with EMI, again not quite clicked. But but A and M, they go back. Was it A and M that they did Yellow Moon with? Yeah, um, that's A and M. I, I yeah. think that's where they had their their good run, their big. Yeah. Run. Yeah, and then and Daniel Lenoir, uh, who you know, famous for co-producing the Joshua Tree with Brian Eno, but and he was just red hot through this whole period in the early '90s. And one of the few producers, he kind of made authenticity and particularly New Orleans, you know, or Louisiana kind of stuff his brand. And so he's a perfect producer for them. And Yellow Moon is, I, I think, my, my favorite of their albums as Neville Brothers. Um, it's a really great album. I mean, these guys have put out so much stuff, and it's, I know. it's it's all so good. Yeah, it's it's an incredible discography, and and this book, and also the internet just makes it so much easier to 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 sort this stuff out, and you can get mm-hmm. great collections of one in particular. I liked was called the the uh, Neville Brothers Greatest Hits, but what it was was a compilation of all of Art and Aaron's early singles, which was really handy and and sure. really good stuff. Um, but it was also uh, false advertising because it wasn't really <laughs> the Neville Brothers anything. It was the Neville Brothers, but it was Neville Brothers. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah it, was, it was two Nevilles and their brothers, but it wasn't them recording this <laughs> the Neville Brothers. But but yeah, it was, it was a fascinating period. But like. That was another thing, though. The Linda Ronstadt stuff. I was so allergic to Linda Ronstadt as a (laughs) self-identified punk rocker in the '80s. I never forgave her for calling the Ramones constipated. And uh, and (laughs) and then and then you know, so that was my first exposure to Aaron Neville. And yeah, I mean, I was it. It it didn't get him off to the right foot with me. Like I, I I I. pigeonholed him into kind of an easy listening category that then when I got to college and, and heard the buzz about the Neville brothers and finally got a chance to see him. I mean, it was completely different than what I expected, you know, yeah. having labeled him as an easy listening Linda Ronstadt dude, like I was not expecting the full on new Orleans, you know, package that they, they were able to bring, but just an incredible run. And I think Ritz does a really good job of telling the story in a pretty concise fashion and giving each period pretty equal weight. I thought, did you think that there was other than the meter session stuff, I would like to have heard more. And like you said, maybe he was trying to de-emphasize art a little bit, but was there anything that you wanted more of in this book or? Well, I, 
Well, you know, I could probably read a whole book about all four of these guys, to be honest with you. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I think that uh, an emphasis like on on the musical side of of Charles would have been interesting. And that that might take us into some of the stuff that that he was doing. I think he's got some solo stuff where it's all bebop. Yeah, uh, yeah, which is, which is really cool. You know, they were they were connected to you know the Ellis Marsalis stuff that that was going on uh, as well. There's there's so many different strands that are in the this family here, um, but I I would have uh, been interested in hearing a little bit more about that. And honestly, for as big as Aaron's career was in the late '80s and into the '90s. It only gets a couple of pages. <laughs> it's true that, yeah. And and I think it it is really really significant. But I think it may also the the book might also be staying to the character of Aaron, who is ultimately a very humble guy and very very loyal. Um, and yeah, you know was always always dedicated to his brothers uh throughout and and no matter what and it's it's really uh admirable that he stuck with his brothers even you know when really really big things were going on like i think uh you know multiple platinum albums uh he and linda ronstadt uh went number number one or whatever and you know won the the grammy or you know best like pop group or duo vocal uh two times in a row like i don't has anybody else done that i don't know uh i will say i gotta i gotta i gotta stick up for my man aaron in the in the 80s and 90s uh his voice is uh it, it can really it can go everywhere but there's something just so like supple and feather weight about it that it really lends itself to uh to softer stuff uh just just as much as you know the the hardest funk and there's there, he's just doing some beautiful beautiful singing on like i i don't know much um it, you know if i was the producer what i i you know produce it in that you know very clean slick style that that was going on no i i I probably wouldn't but man it it is aaron neville's voice is just uh an absolute work of art now i'll hear it however completely unique instrument a beautiful beautiful thing yeah and and i i do think about what the man had gone through uh to to get to that point so, you know, if if I had, you know, quit heroin after two decades and and gone through all the, the trouble that he and his brothers had gone to gone through, I might want to sing some some beautiful ballads, too. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I mean, I'm not going to knock his success or, or anything. It just wasn't my cup of tea at the time. I mean, he did yeah. like a Kenny G was on one of his one of his videos. Yeah, but you gotta but, remember, like one of their big influences was Nat King Cole, who you know he he stepped right into that that yeah. uh, same smooth world. 
uh, in his own way in his own time and and uh, you know. very much so. And also, I thought it was interesting that that uh, the Soul Machine did like a lot of bread and and carpenters and and they were really into that early '70s soft pop stuff. Yeah. as as well as the hard funk and that that was a consistent thread all through they they always you know liked a lot of uh what you might think was you know corny white pop or whatever they they, they had an ear for that stuff and so it was totally consistent with their uh aesthetic and yeah i mean by the time you get through this book and you realize the kind of hell that they'd lived through um you can't you can't begrudge them any any of their success. So yeah, I, I made peace with with Aaron Neville, just like I made peace with Lionel Richie. And, and so Lionel, I'm telling you, man, Lionel's <laughs> Lionel was putting some work in in the '80s, man. I, I'm not going to deny totally it. there. Yeah, I, I totally respect it. I just I was just angry about it at the time. So Brooks, it's been a treat. I always love talking about the David Ritz Book Club with my man Brooks Long. The, tonight's ex, uh, edition was the Brothers Neville, Art, Aaron, Charles, and Cyril. Uh, by those guys themselves and David Ritz. So, Brooks, can't wait to get back. Uh, we'll have to talk offline about which David Ritz book we want to cover next. Nathan, it was a pleasure. It always is. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Thursday, Nate welcomes back John Higgs to discuss the KLF the band that burned a million pounds in cash and took their music offline for 23 years. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcast.com. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.